So Matt, you know, in, in business negotiations, people are always trying to, to get the best deal and, and really push the bargain. And, and then have you ever heard of a business person who says right at the beginning, I concede? In Monty Python's The Life of Brian, Brian is running away from the Romans and he goes down into the market and there's a market stall with hats. He grabs a hat and puts it on to disguise himself and says to the market stall owner, how much is this? And the guy says, it's five shekels. And Brian says, here's five shekels. But the stall owner says, no, 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 no. You can't just give me the price. You've got to haggle. You've got to haggle, mate. Brian says, no, it's, I'm giving you the five shekels. And he says, no, 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 you're supposed to say, call that a hat, that's rubbish. Here's one shekel. And then I say, what do you mean? This is a wonderful hat. I want five shekels for that. It may be four. I'll tell you what, I'll do it for four. And they negotiate until they get down. But actually there, I suppose you could say, Brian has conceded right away. He's made a concession right off the top of the bat. Aha, uh -huh. but... That's, you know, that's just a movie. But that's not know, how business happens. You know. It's not how business typically happens. But it turns out concessional finance is an actual thing that happens in real life. When people give away finance for less than they could ask for it. They concede. They concede, yes. They concede some of the conditions uh, related to the financing. We should do a podcast about that. Let's do that. Before we do it, don't forget, everybody, you should subscribe to this podcast. It's a wonderful podcast. And don't forget, you can also rate it because on the new uh, iTunes app uh, on your cell phone, it's actually much easier to rate uh, podcasts than it used to be. I noticed that today. I've been rating all my favorite podcasts with, with five stars, and I'm sure that's what you're going to give to us. So for concessional finance and impact finance, we're joined by Heike Rutgers, who is the head of division for development and impact finance here at the European Investment Bank. And have you ever had any experience of living the way uh, people in less developed countries live? Absolutely. I have been living a part of my life in Africa where I've been working um, and then I've been abroad to India, where I lived uh, in an ashram for a number of weeks, um, and really going the spiritual way. Ah, that's what people associate with banks, so that's good to know. <laughs> we also have with us Claudia Carli, who's um, an economist with the bank, and who, um, uh, who studied actually not in Europe, but in Australia, where he studied risk management in trade. And Claudio also has um, outside EU experience. He is, uh, is fond of kite surfing in Morocco. What's so big about kite surfing in Morocco? You don't do kite surfing in Luxembourg, right? Well, not really, given the weather, although the wind might help here. <laughs> ah, okay. And also we've got Nina Fenton, who's also an economist in the economics department. And uh, given that this is the European Investment Bank, you're a European. I am indeed. Have you worked a lot in Europe? Uh, no, I haven't. This is actually my, uh, the first time I've had what I'd call a, a proper job in Europe. Uh, previous to this, I was mostly working in, in Asia, in Laos and in the Philippines. 
um, and a little bit in, in Africa. So, so did you do any kite surfing? I didn't do kite surfing, but uh, I actually had the opportunity to swim with whale sharks, which I think is one of the most exciting things I've done oh, in yeah, the you Philippines. You've got two legs there, though. Uh, indeed. Surprisingly enough, they're vegetarian. Really? Yes, um, but it's hard to remember that when you're faced with a sort of 20-meter-long uh, whale shark. But yes, um, they, so they don't do anything. more whale, less shark, really? Uh, yes, yes. Ah, oh, so it's lucky you're not plankton. Then, <laughs> so let's start with concessional finance, which is perhaps the broader of our two subjects today. Heike, what does concessional finance mean? I mean, when we speak about concessional finance, this is mainly outside the EU and in our activity outside the EU. So there may be a requirement uh, for concessional finance, uh, for example, when we are talking about least developed countries and uh, public sector investments and uh, debt sustainability requirements for um, these governments so that we allocate a certain interest rate subsidy, for example, um, to a loan to a government um, to make it debt sustainable um, and bearable for the uh, public budget. So the so concessional finance is part of development finance, but it's not the same thing. Development finance can be concessional and non-concessional. Absolutely. Development finance can be on commercial terms, uh, but uh, taking, for example, a higher commercial risk uh, for a certain purpose um, so, so development finance is really a very broad term. Concessional finance is a certain portion and a certain way of doing things under development finance. But when, when we say concessional finance uh, uh, gives an advantage to the to the promoters, to to um, uh, to the companies or public sector entities, we also we also pass on that advantage. At, as the EIB, we also pass that advantage on to our other borrowers in, in the EU are uh, non-concessional borrowers, right? So how, how is that different from what we do specifically in the development countries? I mean, what we do in the, in the developing countries, um, and there again, cons- the, the, the term concessional finance uh, can be uh, concrete, uh, for example, interest rate subsidy, so making a loan cheaper. It can be also to make the tenor longer or extending the grace period, so the period in which only interest rates are due and no capital repayments. So adding a certain grant element um, to your loan, which makes then uh, this financing affordable um, for the project and may make the project happen in the end. A lot of people, when they think of development aid, they think of just giving money to a, a less developed country. What's the difference and why would you do a concessional loan rather than just saying, here's the money? Well, the big difference is that uh, the money comes back or uh, that, that, that is actually the purpose. So it's not a grant which is given, which, which is a gift and then uh, not coming back and which allows you to, uh, to reuse the funds for other purposes. So uh, in terms of sustainability of development finance, uh, concessional loans play a very important lo- uh, role because it allows you to recycle and recommit the funds for other projects, so to make uh, much more happening outside there. Is this what, what's also called a soft loan? I would say it's also, yes, a, a soft loan. So that's um, another phrase that people yes, might use could, to describe Yes, this. indeed, indeed, yes. 
But there's no difference. A concessional not loan really, is also not really. a soft loan. Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. I think what is important, uh, though, to uh, to bear is the notion of that uh, you would um, you would apply such a concessionality for a certain reason. So there must be really a need to apply this. It's not just to make it cheaper because the client is nice or because you happen to have uh, too much funds or so. It's really for a certain purpose. It's really to make things happening, which otherwise wouldn't, uh, wouldn't happen. So to have an impact. To have an impact, which indeed. Which brings us to impact finance. So, Nino, what is impact finance and how is it different to concessional finance? Okay, so uh, Heiko was saying earlier that concessional finance, you would often make the loan cheaper to the client. Now, with impact finance, that's not actually the approach. The approach is largely um, the loan might be, you know, not not cheap, but the idea is to find projects that are financially sustainable where they're actually going to make money, but they just can't find that money on the market. So the idea is not to provide the money cheaper, but to provide money that wouldn't be there. So it's to help projects go ahead that otherwise wouldn't happen um, for various reasons, usually connected to risk. Um, And that's what we really focus on here at EIB is projects that can't go ahead because um, there are high risks um, for various reasons, like it's a high-risk country and you can't mitigate those risks. But where we believe that it should be financially sustainable um, and where we believe there will be a high development impact. Can you give us an example of some of those kinds of risks? I mean, we can we can think of you know war and things like that. And yeah, so countries, war but... would be one of the risks. We mm-hmm. um, you know some of our impact financing in in Africa is in sort of fragile and conflict affected states, but also things like local currency risk, right? So a microfinance institution, for example, they're lending to their clients in local currency, um, and they can't take on always U.S. dollar or euro loans because obviously. If, you know, the currency depreciates, it's really hard for them to pay that back. And then mm-hmm. that stops them being able to lend to the small micro entrepreneurs, um, you know, uh, to help them to get onto a productive activity. So what EIB does, we take on um, some of the risk so that we're able to provide those local currency loans. So the idea is really that then they can get to those um, micro entrepreneurs in areas where, you know, there's a high local currency risk. We did have an episode of this podcast on microfinance. Uh, but I'm going to ask you guys to refresh our memories about that. Claudia, what is microfinance and how does it operate in, in developing countries? Okay, yeah. Well, microfinance is simply the, pro- the provision of, uh, of loans to uh, micro-entrepreneurs and also to households. Uh, usually, uh, the microfinance institutions, typically, especially in developing countries, they deal mostly with low-income groups and communities and what makes special microfinance compared to a financial institution so a fully fledged banks is that they usually have an intentionality behind which is either addressing underserved markets rather than underserved communities so we're talking about uh, uh, some specific type of businesses like uh, agricultural loans uh, for farmers uh, in uh, deprived uh, areas rather than uh, low underserved communities such as women or youth. But I understand both for concessional finance and for impact finance, we are, uh, we are offering these also to private sector entities, either to micro-businesses or to private, uh, private companies. And so we're, we're making um, the loans cheaper or we're providing money that they otherwise wouldn't have 
but they're still in it for the for the profit. They're they're doing business. So how is that? Um, how is that a a public policy objective? Uh, we we there are still cases where we apply uh, concessional finance in the private sector because we want again to achieve a certain purpose. It's definitely not to make the profit of uh, the, our borrower bigger of the private investor, but it's uh, it it may help then to uh, have the project. Uh, finance and including a certain number of investments which we consider crucial. So that may be uh, in the environmental area. Um, it may have also a social purpose uh, in the sense of making, for example, tariffs lower in a renewable energy project. It may help to accompany certain social purposes. For example, we had a case where we financed uh, the sugar industry reform in, in Mauritius, which was linked to um, uh, helping to set up the first sugar refinery, so adding value to the value chain in the country. But on the other hand, um, the, the country was reducing its production of sugar uh, by half, which had a social impact, of course. Uh, so a lot of people were losing their jobs. And so the interest rate subsidy helped to smoothen and to mitigate the impact on of this industry reform. Mm -hmm. So there may be several cases, but it has to have a definite purpose. It's definitely not meant to increase uh, any profits of private investors. And I think for the impact investing, usually these are promoters who are targeting these kind of social and environmental returns alongside financial returns. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why we would target something that's financially sustainable, because that's something that's going to be scalable, that we're not just going to have a small project that then dies out, but can keep reaching more and more people. And I think the other thing for us under the impact financing particularly is we, we think it's important where the promoter is committed to actually measuring those um, environmental and social benefits. And, mm -hmm. and that's something that Claudio and myself work on is, is looking at, you know, we have a lot of very different objectives with the different projects. Some are more focused on environment, some are more focused on reaching the poor. Um, but for each one of those, we work with the companies to think about what exactly is it that we want to measure here, so that as well as looking very rigorously at, uh, you know, the financial performance of the firm, we're looking very carefully at the environmental and social benefits we're getting. When people think of uh, aid, let's say, or development, uh, I think a lot of people, perhaps because of the media, think of George Clooney and Gisela Bunchen sitting there with with happy African <laughs> children in a village. But it seems that a lot of what you're talking about might involve fairly complex technology. So these concessional loans might be to introduce, as you were saying, um, renewable energy and, and very expensive technology. I mean, uh, concessional finance uh, is, is definitely, uh, yes, what we want to, br we want to bring it into a more uh, traditional finance space. I think that that's what we also try to do in order to attract, of course, also private investors to join us in this venture. And, uh, and so it's not about charity. We are not in the charity business. We are not in philanthropy business. We want uh, to really make this an interesting investment also for, for others. So we want to crowd in others into, into that. 
And for that, you have to make the case. And that is often that we kick off uh, this type of projects with other uh, peer institutions who are also operating in that space. But the idea is really to bring in as much as private investors as we can attract by making, by showcasing that this can be an interesting investment overall. But the concessionality element of these uh, financing projects that does come out of the budget of somebody. So is it usually it's the European Union or whose who's budget are we using or whose money are we using to, um, to allow these um, cheaper or, or, or better terms in commercial? Yes, no, th- there is definitely an element that we, uh, for example, for the interest rate subsidies, we use, uh, in that case, uh, member states' contributions in a subsidy envelope. We may also um, call upon the so-called blending instruments of the European Union. Um, so, so, indeed... What are, sorry, what, are, what is blending? What are the blending instruments? What does that mean? So that there are instruments which make available grant funds in order to combine our lending uh, with a grant component. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's called blending then in the end. Um, and we can do that in, ver- in a number of regions. And uh, there are certain instruments which are then available, be it technical assistance, uh, be it pure investment grants or interest rate subsidies or other uh, what we say, what we call financial instruments, so for risk sharing, uh, so making also lowering the risk of a certain investment. Um, all of this can be then um, mobilized from the so-called blending instruments. This is a dictionary of finance, so we're, we're <laughs> trying to define some terms here, and you mentioned risk sharing. Yes. So first of all, what really is risk sharing? What does that mean? And how does it work in, in the examples that you were just talking about there of blending a grant from the European Commission and and uh, drawing in uh, private investment? So any, any uh, private investment has a certain commercial risk uh, allocated to it, which is identified. And if, if we, for example, um, I mean, with the intention to push the development agenda, uh, we see that certain, if, we, if, we, if I take back the case, for example, of uh, private renewable energy projects in sub-Saharan Africa, there is a certain risk. So private investors shy away from this, the country risk, uh, from the risk of not being paid by the power utility who has is the uh, ultimately the the buyer of this uh, the energy produced and so on and we can with a certain uh, grant component with the risk sharing component we can lower this risk we can share this this risk making it less so for the, and and so making the the investment uh, more attractive for the private investors meaning if if the project loses money, we'll take the A hit guarantee first mechanism can step in and, and take yeah. these, yes. Or if a project is making first losses, so these first losses can be taken uh-huh. uh, by, such a, by such a scheme, yes. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, subscribers all over the world. According to our, uh, our, our metrics, we have, uh, we have seven subscribers in um, Mongolia. Don't we? But wherever they might be, let's say we have listening to this a uh, a small entrepreneur with a great idea in a developing country. What do they do to get their hands on this kind of support? 
So, you know, we're, we're still a bank and we still have to work with slightly larger projects. Unfortunately, I mean, I, personally, I'd love to work with the small guys uh, on the ground. And it's always nice when we go on mission to meet those people. But we don't have the capacity, you know, to assess their projects. So probably the first step for them, um, you know, is to, to uh, work up their own business plan. And I think there's a lot of organizations more and more so that can help them. I mean, not least, you know, there's a growing number of incubators, for example, um, in, in a lot, I don't know Mongolia, but in a lot of these countries. And that's where I think they can take that first step. And actually, I think EIB, with some of our partners, is actually supporting ind- indirectly some of those. So I think, you know, for them to access the EIB funding, that would be the first step to kind of work up a proper business plan to find something that's financially going to work and then, you know, try to take it from there. And they might be able to access, for example, some of our micro loans through um, financial intermediaries that we, that we support. I have to concede that was a really great episode. But it did have a positive impact on me, I guess. I'm not making any concessions. It was fantastic. And uh, we'd love to hear from anybody who's been listening on our Twitter feeds. I'm at EIB Matt, E-I-B-M-A-T-T. And I'm at Dollar Tankler, A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. And don't forget to subscribe now that it's super easy to do so on the iTunes app and everywhere else. Subscribe, give us five stars, tell all your friends, and enjoy next week's podcast when we'll be talking about Bitcoin.